Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. This is a podcast connecting with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. On March 17th, we'll celebrate the birth of LGBTQ icon and activist Bio Dresden. Rustin, who died in 1987 at age 75, was an African-American leader and social movement for civil rights, socialism, nonviolence, and gay rights. One of his most notable contributions to the African-American civil rights movement was his planning of a 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom now popularly associated with Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. In the 70s and 80s, he worked as a human rights and election monitor for Freedom House and testified on behalf of New York State's gay rights bill. Our guest today is Walter Nagel. He's a surviving partner of the late civil rights leader and the executive director of the Biodreston Fund, which commemorates Reston's life values, and legacy. Many were first introduced to Biodressin through the film Brother Outsider. Mako is here today to shed even more light on the life and times of Biodressin, including recent publications and a Netflix documentary produced by the Obama's Higher Ground Productions. Walter, welcome back to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? Thank you, Michelle, for welcoming me back. I am doing quite well, thank you. A little chilly here in New York, but uh, we're not buried <laughs> in snow, so I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's nice. I mean, it's easy to remember, you know, people who have who are right here in the spotlight. But after they've gone, you know, like sometimes people forget. And I know that... Friday coming up would have been um, by its what is it 111th birthday, mm-hmm. and and it's interesting that although we have higher visibility, you know, as members of the LGBTQ community, you also have people who want to erase our history, erase a lot of Black history from the schools, from libraries, and you know, so it's like. It's a good time, what is it, the best of times, but also the worst of times. Yeah. That's, that's very true. Um, it is great to be here during uh, the week of Byrd's birthday. It's St. Patrick's Day this Friday, and as you say, mm-hmm. he'd be 111. And um, we do live, you know, we live in, in, in very, well, interesting times. That's a kind of an old cliche. But 
like you said, on the one hand, we have forces who are, you know, talking about, uh, you know, making honest uh, remarks and honest uh, stories about our, our history and facing our history. And at the same time, we have for, uh, other forces who, do, who want to cover up certain things or don't want to talk about certain things because um, it might make their children uncomfortable, uh, things like that. And so, you know, Bard is one of these people who is uh, so, I mean, so far, I think he's, he's gotten off pretty easily. I mean, he could easily be the figure in the middle of a tug of war. Because on the one hand, you have people that don't want to talk about him, largely because of the fact that he was gay and some of his radical politics. But as you mentioned, at the same time, he was the organizer of one of the, actually one of the greatest days in our country's history, the, uh, a you know, a celebration of uh, the, the African-American struggle, but the African-American struggle to become really an integral part of the country. They were trying to uh, extend democracy to everybody in the country. So it really wasn't about trying to uh, turn America backwards. It was trying to improve it and, and have it live up to uh, what it stood for. So I think you, you know somewhat of a tension there. You know, I, I mean, you know, sometimes, you know, when you think about people, I can only imagine him being here. I mean, and being at that crossroads. I mean, we're still fighting to protect voters' rights. I mean, you know, there, you know, there's this erasure of our history, and and not wanting, like you said, not wanting to talk about something because it might make kids uncomfortable. And then, you know, the uh, you, I hear people who talk about many in, in the LGBTQ community who are saying, like, you know, like. Well, they're ready to go back in the closet, even though, you know, we've got these high-profile people who are in the queer community. I mean, who would have thought that, you know, the Secretary of Transportation would be, and he would also run for, for president, a gay man. I mean, you know, I mean, and but it, it's like I can only imagine what he would think being here. But, you know, you knew him best. I mean, I imagine that you, you can, do you ever, as you see something on the news and you see an attack or something on our rights, whether they're on civil rights, whether they're on LGBTQ rights, do you ever like have a conversation, you know, in your head with, with him saying like, do you see this? What's happening? That's very true. I do. I think of him. I think of him often. And of course, people, one of the questions people ask me a lot is, "Well, what would Byard think now about mm. X or about Y?" Um, but I'll tell you, you know, this whole business is going on in, in educational institutions, and you know, quote unquote, protecting our children, et cetera. This is this is not. This, kids don't have a problem with this stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, kids are, uh, you know, seeing LGBT char uh, characters and uh, people on television programs all the time, um, you know, things that they watch on their computer, and they don't have a problem with it. They're much more accepting than, certainly, than my generation was. And I think the issue is really the problem is the parents and the grandparents, mm -hmm. okay. my mm -hmm. generation. You know, we, we, we think we want to protect our kids from something, and, you know, they're way, they're way ahead of us. And I think... Uh, when you look back at the movement, uh, part of the reason that Bard was so appealing 
was because he was on the cutting edge and because he was radical. And it was the young people. There again, mm-hmm. it was the young people out there who were sitting in at the lunch counters and who were marching um, in Birmingham and, uh, you know, in different parts of the South. The movement, you know, after the initial phases of the movement with Dr. King and Montgomery, young people got on board in the late 1950s and the early 60s. And it was college students and high school students and even younger people who were sort of pushing the movement in a much more progressive direction. If it had been left up to the older folks, you know, it would have been, it would have taken longer. It would have been more moderate. So you really need those young voices and those young people. And I think parents today need to listen. They need to talk to their young mm-hmm. their kids, you know. Is this mm-hmm. stuff bothering you, or are you upset by what you are hearing in school, et cetera, et cetera? I would say most of them probably would not would not be. Mm-hmm. And you know, and and I'll tell you, um, I envision him. You know, I also knew another woman who was from Detroit, uh, Grace Lee Boggs, who died like she was in a hundred. And what? And I think of them like, in some ways, like because she would sit down with young people and I see pictures of him. It's like, you know, interacting with young people, hearing these new ideals. And I think that he'd be right with it. You know, I mean, If he were here today, he'd be right with the young people and, and, and hearing what they have to say and encouraging them and sharing his experience. Uh, when you met him, we, and, and I know you've told me the story about, you know, seeing him, but when you met him, were you intimidated at all by what he was involved in and who he was? Oh, for a few moments. <laughs> for a few moments. But Byron was such a warm, engaging, and really uh I mean, just a down-to-earth person. Um, you know, I like to say that he was ex- he was ordinary in an extraordinary way. He mm. was not somebody who was terribly full of himself. And even though at the time that I met him, you know, he had a position sort of in the upper echelon of, if you will, of the civil rights leadership. But he he didn't he he wasn't. Uh, high-strung or conceited or holier-than-thou. Um, and I think largely because he really didn't, you know, he really didn't become relatively famous until he was, uh, you know, well into his 50s and early 60s after the March on Washington. Up until that mm-hmm. time, he was a, he was out there, he was a, a, a paid-for-hire organizer, if you will, or a, a radical mm-hmm. who was out there uh, organizing things, and so he was always interacting with with young people, and mm-hmm. the people he surrounded himself with at the March on Washington office, and the people I knew when I worked at the A. Philip Randolph Institute, they were all you know they were a generation or two younger than Byard, so he was mm-hmm. always surrounding himself with fresh voices, and and young people knew that you know they could go and they could you know they could show up at his office, and he would. If he had a, the time, he would call him in and sit down with him and talk with him. And that's not the kind of thing I think you could get, you could do with, um, well, without mentioning any names, with some of the other uh, civil mm-hmm. rights. You just couldn't walk into their office and expect to see them. And you could do that with Bayard. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, how, I mean, how great is that? I mean, and you know, because sometimes you'll you'll go someplace. I mean, you need people like that because who will take the time to sit down and talk to them to know that they're not only heard, you know, so it's not just like you're just going in and talking this, you're going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're listening, and some of it you'll see later on reflected in policy, in action, in doing it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, I think that that's great. Now, I am going to ask, because I've heard you tell it, and I think it's it's, like, lovely, how you first saw him, and what did you think? Well, I I met him uh, at a time that I had decided to leave New York City. Uh, New York was kind of a rough place in the, in the 70s, and I had been here, oh, about seven years at that time, and I decided to move to San Francisco. California and San Francisco had always been kind of this golden mecca if you will, mm-hmm. for young people and especially for, for gay men. And I think, you know, we had illusions about what life was like out there. Uh, and so I had decided to, to leave New York and move out there. I had a couple of friends that lived out there already. And I was on my way to a newsstand in Times Square where they sold out-of-town newspapers. And I was going to pick up a San Francisco paper and start looking for jobs and looking at housing situation, prices, et cetera, et cetera. And... Um, I was waiting on a corner for the light to change, mm. and Laura was right there next next to me, and we looked at each other, and he introduced himself, he smiled, and he introduced himself, and, you know, we crossed the street, and I went and got the paper, but um, didn't didn't get uh, anywhere near San Francisco at that point. <laughs> I love that. And you know why I love it? It's because, I know, people forget that, our community, that we're just people, and that love can happen just like that. I mean, isn't that the plot for, like, you know, any kind of rom-com, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. it, but it can happen just like that. And it's that not only that beautiful, but that lasting. Uh, so uh, you didn't make it, you know. <laughs> you didn't make it. That, that, you know, that dream of going you found right right where you were. The, the one, you know, so that that's really amazing. You know, you worked with the, uh, a Philip Randolph organization. Here by it is, he's, you know, radical. You both have ideas. Were you always on the same page, or did you sometimes have differences that maybe you both come at at a, at an issue from different ways and then sort of, find common ground or where you heard him, he heard you, and then together you came out with a different pathway in dealing with or looking at an issue? Well, I think for the most, for the most part we were on the same page. When it, mm-hmm. you know, when it came to values and principles, you know, and the basic philosophy that we both believed in, we, we were on the same page. I think the difference... Um, and it really didn't show itself very often, but whatever difference there was would have been the same difference that young people had, other young people had with Bayard, and and in the past, Bayard had with Mr. Randolph and older people. It has to do mm-hmm. with um, young people wanting things to change more quickly. You want things to change overnight. You're in a hurry. And mm-hmm. uh, Bayard was the same way when he was young. 
but as he got older, he realized that, you know, change will come, but it's not going to come overnight, and it requires a lot of work, and it requires a lot of patience, and sometimes you're going to take a few steps backwards, not all the way back to where you were, but a few steps, but that doesn't mean you should give up, and you just keep need, you need to keep moving forward, and I think, um, you know, I, I understood that. So, again, if we disagreed, it was maybe on the pace of, on the pace of something or how quickly something should happen. But it was very, it was very rare. We were, we were very compatible. Mm-hmm. Now you are really, you maintain a lot of his legacy, but in listening to you talk, you know, his thoughts and things were also yours, but how do you feel? I mean, you know, how, keeping his legacy and knowing that it is, and now that you've seen, you know, like I said, when I were in the introduction, you know, People saw Brother Outsider, which is just like a snippet of his life, a really great snippet, but it opens the doors for um, conversation about him and about what was going on. What part of his legacy do you feel gets overlooked? Well, I would say that very often... um, the last 10 to 15 years of his life, uh, time that I was with him, um, not so much about me, but about the kind of work that he was doing. Because I mm-hmm. think when people, when people start doing a, a biography, say, of Bayard, um, there was so much. I mean, he did so much. He was involved in so many things. But by the time they get around to, say, 1968, 1970, they have a 600-page book, and their publisher's already telling them to cut, cut, cut. So mm-hmm. very often, those last 20 years, uh, from you know from 67 to 87, get kind of truncated into a you know a small chapter, and you know they touch on the things that you you mentioned in your introduction: the election monitoring, working for human rights, testifying for LGBT rights, uh, but it doesn't get uh, it doesn't get really dealt with in very much depth. And I think that some of the work that's going on now and some of the work that will be coming out in the future will hopefully uh, dig a little bit deeper into those issues. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because those are important times of your life. You know, I, I think I, what I, I'd like to see about that, too, is like, you know, many people, you see them right when there's a big flash, you know, at, that, at like the 60s, but their work continues. And... Sometimes you have the next generation come around and it's like they're doing and it's like, you know, this isn't new. This has been going on. But And he was really good at, for the work, stepping out of the spotlight, you know, you know, like, you know, this is what has to be done. And I think that that's important, you know, and I think that, too, as we all age, you know, to know I mean, because I'm, I'm going to talk to some people about ageism because I know that sometimes people will look and go like, oh, you don't have anything else to contribute. Yeah, you do. I mean, and it's important that he contributed the rest of his life. He didn't just go and say, okay, well, I'm done now. Let's make this book. Mm-hmm. Um, do they come and consult too? I know that we both um, have worked with the Biodiversity Center for Social Justice and and in Princeton, um, 
And I know that one of the things that Robert, the chief activist, talks about is how they made it point to come and talk to you about how they wanted to use that name. Do you get that a lot, or or is it just like, well, we're going to do this book, and, you know, uh, you want to give us a couple of quotes, or, or, you know, can we look at stuff, and then just, you know, like you're just almost like the curator of a museum? Well, I think it's mostly... Mostly the former. I think people people want to talk to me, and they want to talk to people who actually knew Bard. They want to talk, you know. They want, uh, I guess, what they call primary sources. Um, mm-hmm. So very often they come to me. Uh, sometimes it's the latter. Somebody wants to name an organization or a club or a community center or something after Bard, and you know, they they just kind of want my permission or my blessing, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, to do that. I don't think, legally, I don't think they're required to get my pr- permission, but they're, you know, <laughs> they're, trying, they're trying to be respectful, and I, and I appreciate that. Um, but I, what, I, what I do en- I enjoy, especially uh, engaging with, with young people, there's always, uh, every year there are a couple, maybe three or four young people who come to me because they're doing a project for National History Day, um, and, you know, these are middle school, very often middle school kids, high school kids, you know, they can, they can be pretty young, 12, 11, 12, 13 year olds. And of course you wonder, well, how did you even hear about this guy? So I, you know, I ask them questions too. I ask them mm-hmm. to tell me a little bit about why they're doing the project they are and how did they hear about this man, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's, a, it's, I think it's a worthwhile, um, it's a worthwhile exchange. Um, there's a there is quite a bit actually that's going on as we speak. Um, you know, this is the 60th anniversary year of the March on Washington at the end of August. Mm-hmm. And the film that the uh, Obama company is producing, Rustin, <coughs> I'm expecting that they're going to probably be releasing that right around the right around the end of August, right around the time of the march. Mm-hmm. So that will be something that will lift Bard's profile considerably because it's, you know, it's not a documentary, it's a docudrama, um, but it will certainly introduce his name to lots of mm-hmm. people who, you know, probably have not heard of him yet. So that mm-hmm. that's, that's a good thing. Uh, there's going to be another collection of essays about Bard and about his work and his legacy, which will be coming out right around the same time. Um, so that'll be happening, and I'm working uh, with the National Museum for Civil Rights, the museum that's based at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, uh, and we're, we're working on a major exhibit about Bard, which we expect to open in June of 2024. So there's a you know a lot a lot of work that's being done, a lot of research that's being done. So I think over the next year or so, there's going to be a lot more. A lot of attention paid to Bard. Now, when they made um, his his residence, Scott, uh, designated in the National Register of Historic Places, did you see, like, a bump in interest from that, or do you see people who are coming who want to see that place? Mm-hmm. Uh, both, I think. There, there, was, there was a bump. Uh, I could, you mm-hmm. know, explode in, in the press. Um, in the in the new the news releases about it, 
and you know I can see there's there's a plaque downstairs on the on the lawn which I can see from my living room window from my balcony and very often um, there are you know you'll look down and there'll be a group of people uh, standing uh-huh. the um, and it's also Byard's residence I think is on it's on the Google map of uh-huh. the area and so if somebody's doing a walking tour of North Chelsea or say if they're doing a black history tour of this part of the city because there's an underground uh, there's an underground railroad station across the street on 29th Street. So there's several several places right in the community here that you know relate directly to African American history. So you might see people who are doing one of those tours coming by and taking a look at the plaque. Wow, that's nice. That's really nice. Yeah, it is. Yeah, uh, I know. Well, how did you find out that it was going to go on this registry? Well, there was a gentleman um, from Maryland, I think. His name is Mark Meinke. And he had sort of taken on the task of writing up um, applications, specifically, I think specifically for LGBTQ uh, people, heroes, and writing something about their residence. And you know, trying to get them uh, onto the National Historic Register. So he really took it on himself. I, you know, I helped him to the degree that I could, but it's a pretty complicated process. The application, I think, was something like 35 pages. Wow. Uh, a lot of text that he had to write, you know, specifically about Byard's history and why this uh, residence is important, you know, in our in our nation's history, et cetera. And so, uh, as I say, I, you know, I conferred with him and I helped him to the degree that I could, but he really took it on to um, shepherd it through the whole process. Wow. I mean, that's something, you know, all, that many pages to get there, but how important it is because sometimes a place will get lost. I know that there is a, a and people say, well, the plant doesn't really matter. There's a house here. And I think I can't think of what name Doctor Sweet's name was. And in fact, they were saying that um, here in Detroit, he had, had he and his wife had moved into this house, which right now is like deep in the hood, you know. And uh, at that point in time, it was uh, Detroit was very segregated, and uh, they circled his house. You know, he and his wife and, and child end up dying. I want to say that the NAACP Civil Defense Fund sort of came out of that fighting to get him out. And there was this plaque. And over the years, you know, the house had kind of sort of got run down and greed had grown up, but somebody bought the house. And as they were doing it, they found this plaque. And it made them think, you know, like, what? who is this? What was it about? And now, like you said, like during Black History Month, it's a stop, you know. Mm-hmm. And so some people would say, oh, well, the plaque doesn't matter. And yes, the plaque does matter because you can look at it and recognize and think about, you know, well, what was happening at this point? This is where this person lived. This is where, you know, all of this came out about. And the fact that you can look out and see it, you know, that's kind of cool. I mean, and that's the real place. I know that at the... Legacy Project in Chicago, they have a plaque, but it's not the same. Do you know what I mean? It's just it's acknowledging and recognizing as far as 
part of being part of the rich history of the city. Right. So, mm-hmm. so it's, I mean, it's, it's you know, like, you're right. It's not it's not the place where the person lived, where the person walked around, where the person hung out. Um, I've had a cut. Well, a couple of people who were here uh, visiting not too long ago, a writer um, and a playwright. Um, and they just just kind of walking around the streets around here, uh, they sort of got a feeling that, well, gee, this, these are the very streets that Mr. Rustin walked on, and I wonder if he went to this place or that place. Or It, it does create a, a different feeling uh, mm-hmm. to have the actual place. I was down in uh, North Carolina in <clears throat> October for a few days, and um, a friend of mine, Mandy Carter, and I... Uh-huh. And he took me over to the Paulie Murray house that his family Oh, yes. Uh-huh. That, that's another example of a house being really rescued because, um, you know, the condition it's in now, look, it looks quite good. But at the time that it was purchased and taken over, I think it was, uh, you know, quite run down. And, of course, people really didn't know the history and didn't know much about Paulie Murray. And I think now that the property is being developed and they have some plaques around there, and there's a small museum next door. People are starting to learn about someone who, like Byard, you know, has been largely overlooked by mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And her story I mean, come out now and be well-known. I mean, really, I mean, you know, she is, and there's a, a woman who's here who found out about polymer. She's been down there and she started writing things and doing research on it. And I know Mandy, I mean, and, but there's so many people who did not know about Polly Murray. Polly Murray was doing it before Ruth Bader Ginsburg referred, deferred to Polly Murray, you know, that this was someone who did all this. Thing. I mean, you know, it's such a rich history. You know, now I've been in New York and I know like many of our older cities, neighborhoods are changing. You know, neighborhoods are changing. I think that's also important why to have that plaque there because as the neighborhood changes, I mean, we always hear about it, to remember that this is what it was about and imagine that time, imagine living in that time, imagine this person who maybe you saw in a movie but then you want to go and dig deeper and find out about him. He walked these streets, you know, I mean, that's just, like, phenomenal. But, oh, wow. You know, I have I have the Pauli Murray house on my list of, of – uh, my short list of places to go because I love history and I love our history and knowing what we've done and that whose shoulders you stand on, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, just- and I think, um, as you know, um, there's so many stories out there you know, people, you know, young people in school, if, if we're taught about anybody, we're taught about, you know, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King, maybe Malcolm X, but all of these other very important figures in different movements kind of get, you know, uh, buried or, or, or mm-hmm. ignored. And there's so many people, I mean, you don't have a movement without a lot of people. A movement is not mm-hmm. one person. It's a lot of people. And so... People like Paulie and Byard and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and Ella Baker and, you know, some of the names that are not really household words, you know, they made very, very important contributions. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, too, and, you know, um, we need to, like I said, we need to know whose shoulders we stand on. And, you know, to know that, you know, everybody who's on TV and everything, what they did might not be lasting work, but the work has been going on and that, you know, sometimes, like you said, yeah, I know how you, I know what it's like to walk around and have these conversations like, what would so-and-so say and do that? But hearing that echo and thinking it, it can be your North Star, that we're fighting for justice. We're marching towards justice. You know, uh, you know how I, I love how they have been an angelic troublemaker. And, you know, that there's a word for who we are and what we, what we do. There's a phrase for it, and it's just not something pulled out the sky. This is someone who talked about how every community needed an angelic troublemaker. And you can be that in your neighborhood. You might not, you know, get a movie made out. You might not, you might just write your books, but you are standing on someone's shoulders, you know. And, and you have not only that legacy, but you had that responsibility to the work that they did, but also to that next generation coming up to do the work. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that they say about you is that you are the executive director of the of the Biodreston Fund. What is that fund and what do you what is your mission? Well the you know, the mission is really to promote the values um and the legacy of Bayard. Um, you know, educate people about who he was, what he stood for. Um, its relevance for today, and really, you know, to encourage people to carry on, you know, carry mm-hmm. on the values. It's not just about history, and that was back then. You know, it's like, well, how do we how do we bring these values into the work that we're doing today? Um, the fund, which at this point is really quite a small operation, uh, was never really intended to be something that would go on in perpetuity. It was set up with a rather modest agenda to get barred into the history books, uh, to educate some young people about who he was, uh, to release the recordings that we've released over the last, you know, during the first years of the fund. But what we found is, um, you know, sort of what was supposed to be the uh, towards the end of our run, like in the late 90s, that's when the book started coming out. Um, Jervis Anderson's biography was published in 1997, and John D'Amelio had already approached me and was starting to work on his biography of Byard. And then the filmmakers who made Brother Outsider came up. And so we realized, you know, we're not going to shut the fund down at this time because there are all these people who are asking for assistance or, uh, you know, assistance in doing their projects. And so we decided to keep it open. Um, one of the things that we're actually we have an event going on this week on Thursday, uh, the night before Bard's birthday. There was a recent book that was published about uh, pacifists during World War II, and they were focusing specifically on Bard, on Dorothy Day, the head of the mm-hmm. Pacifist, um, David Dellinger, who was very active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. Um, and Dwight McDonald, who was the founder of an influential journal in the 1930s or 40s called Politics. And these were four people that this author has lifted up, not just because they were pacifists, which, you know, during World War II was not a very popular position to take. 
Although one thing I learned from this book was the vast majority of Americans were opposed to entering World War II. They were isolationists. They were so-called America First types. But that all changed when Pearl Harbor was bombed, which, you know, I understand that. Mm -hmm, I understand mm -hmm. that. But nevertheless, um, not everybody changed and jumped on the pro-war bandwagon. And Bard and Dorothy and Dave and Dwight were four of those uh, influential people who did not. But the author also likes to or, or, or discusses the evolution of how their ideas influence the people who uh, started the movements in the 50s and the 60s. You know, the, uh, the, the African-American struggle, the LGBT rights movement, the women's movement, all of this work that was coming out was really the legacy of the World War II pacifists and the people who believed in nonviolence because nonviolence was really really the method I mean, it was certainly the method in mm -hmm. the African-American struggle which contributed the most to most to progress. But other people looked at that struggle, women and LGBT folks, and they realized, you know, if we organize and we march and we do it peacefully, then, you know, maybe we can make some headway here. So that was really their, uh, their legacy, if you will, for, the, for, the, for those movements. You know, I think that that's important, too, because and to look at that way, because there are our people who, if you said, and that, back then the word was pacifist, I know that Irene McCall and Michelle Obama said, uh, when they go low, we go high. And I think that a lot of that has to do with pacifism. But it isn't like, you know, oh, being a pacifist didn't mean that they were afraid to fight. They weren't running away from the fight. They looked at a way, actually, to win the fight, not by fighting with other violence, but finding a way to change, move hearts, minds, and make a real change that was lasting, that wouldn't go and go, you know, just go away after the war was over. And I think that often, like, Sometimes that's a discussion that people need to have because, you know, I thought about him. Like I, I know I had interviewed someone after she said that, and they were like, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's always people who want to run. We want to get in there and fight. But, you know, you don't always have to go and, and, and go blow for blow, fist for fist. There is such power in the message of, of what the pacifist movement did, of how, I mean, when you look and you think about what King and all of those did, and it was based on a pacifist message, look what they did. I mean, no, we aren't there yet. There's still things that we have to go back and do, but there's real power in that message. Do you think that, do we need to really have those, continue to have those kind of discussions and how do we look at making real change? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I one of the you know one of the uh, you know I, I'm hoping that the discussion on Thursday will be powerful because you know I mean here Vladimir Putin has invaded the Ukraine and, mm -hmm. and you know in a merciless a brutal attack and of course the Ukrainians are fighting back using violence and you know the question for the pacifists and the people who 
believe in nonviolence is well how do you what do you, how do you deal with the proven? You know, what do you do? And I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to come up with the answers on Thursday, but I want people, uh, you know, especially the Quaker community, who I think there'll be a lot of Quakers at this event, uh, you know, to think about, well, what exactly does the peace testimony mean, and how can we live it today in the midst of some of the horrors that are going on in the world, uh, even, you know, beyond what's going on in the Ukraine, um, there's lots of other problems spots in the world and you know what is the pacifist message and how can you resist or try to resist nonviolently those kinds of things so I'm hoping that that will be part of the discussion on Thursday yeah I mean you know, not only that but then if you think of I mean even here there are some things where it's like well we're gripped for violence you know something goes wrong and they, they grip for violence and they prepare for violence like isn't there a way to look at it? And, and how do we have these conversations? And how do we do this globally? I don't know if you're familiar with Starhawk, <laughs> but um, she wrote this book, The Fifth Sacred Thing. And without giving the whole story away, in the end, like there's a, a part where there's like a, a confrontation, and some people were thinking about, um, you know, how do we do it? And what they went was like, when the military type people came up, they went up to them and they said, you know, there's a place for you at our table mm-hmm. if you'd like to join us, you know. And it, and it was like pretty soon, you know, it didn't mean that everybody threw their guns down in the, in the book immediately, you know. But it was just like that nonviolent thing to go and, and sort of say, you know, no, we're not going to fight. We're not going to come and do all this, although they came for that. And sometimes I think about that that part when you see and something will happen and they'll say, okay, well, the whole city is locked down, prepared for violence, and everyone gears up for violence instead of, you know, peace. Yeah. And I think that peace is so important, you know. Maybe if we if we focused on peace, we'd stop killing our environment, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you were focusing on, you know, building an inclusive community, and as you say, making making a place for it at the table for everybody and, and all of the voices, then you know you can mediate, you can negotiate, you can talk peacefully. But if it becomes a matter of my way or the highway kind of thing, or you know, absolute, you have to do this or it's not going to work. Then you know, then you're going to run into a problem. But um, you know, to to follow up on a point that you mentioned earlier. You know, Bayer did, Bayer did not run away from a fight. And Thank as you. you know, if you've read his history, and I know you have some mm-hmm. of it, and, you know, he took lots of beatings in his life. I mean, he was cracked mm-hmm. over the head any number of times. And, you know, beaten by police, beaten by other prisoners, uh, locked up, put in solitary confinement. You know, he was not, he was certainly not cowardly. Um, mm-hmm. But he believed, he was committed to, a peaceful and a nonviolent way of living. And so he refused to fight back. And on a number of occasions, um, his witness, if you will, his peaceful witness in the face of violence and brutality transformed the situation. Mm-hmm. And it, it mm-hmm. gained respect for him from the, from sometimes from the people who were his opponents. Mm-hmm. The very ones, the very yeah, ones. Exactly. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, and I think that, you know, not only what him, 
But I bet there's a lot of things from those those civil rights, the marches, the thing that so many people they went to jail, they were beaten, they were brutalized, you know, and but they didn't give up, you know, they didn't give up. They were out there the next, you know, got bail money. They were out there the next day marching for peace, arm and arm, you know, shoulder to shoulder. And I think that that's what the people have to to recognize and to, to look at and really examine and talk about, you know, what happened, what happened. And I think particularly for him, and you know, him being, and I, and I know people even now who say, well, he was black, he was male, and then he was gay. Okay, that's like a huge bullseye on your back, you know, especially now who will people, people I know who will say, well, you know, I'm not going to be all out because I'm a black man. Something can happen to me. You know what? Something has been happening. And it's like taking that stand. You know, he took that stand. He, you know, people talk about living life authentically. He lived his life authentically. And that doesn't mean it's going to be, a, uh, you know, a walk in the park. It's hard. Mm-hmm. But if you believe and you're committed to it, that's what you do. In mm-hmm. these, and the books and the documentary and in all these things that that you know that people are going to do, and they might come and talk to you. Do you feel that they're capturing that that spirit that he had, that 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 fight, that that strength that he had in these depictions of his life? Um, I think so, up to now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, even if there's even if there are times when I may disagree with a small issue or something, I think that they generally get that Bard was someone who was serious. <laughs> he, was, mm-hmm. he was someone. He was a person of integrity. He was a person of high moral character. And most importantly, as you were just saying, he you know he persevered. He did not give up the fight just because he occasionally suffered a defeat or was personally hurt, which he was certainly personally hurt on occasions by people that he worked with. Um, mm-hmm. But he knew that the issue it wasn't just about him and his personal feelings; it was about trying to make progress in the society build what Dr. King used to call the beloved community mm-hmm. and, um, you know, speak, be authentic, as you were saying, you know, speak truth to power, be who he was, because that that sentiment goes all the way back to his Quaker upbringing. It's all about mm-hmm. being honest and being truthful and being a person of integrity. And that, you know, went back to his early childhood. Mm-hmm. When you went to the White House to receive the medal for him posthumously. Did you know then that later the Obamas might be thinking about doing something documentary on that version? Did you have a conversation with them about the man behind the medal? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, not a lengthy conversation, simply because... Uh, 
um, I was one of 16 people that day, mm-hmm. and, you know, they they had to make the rounds and speak to everybody. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But they made it clear to me, and I think in, in uh, one or two of the pictures that they, they sent to me, you know, they inscribed and they said, you know, you know, Bard really influenced our thinking. Bard really influenced wow. our ideas. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, I... I believe that. I certainly believe that because um, mm-hmm. there was a, there was an op-ed, a rather large op-ed piece that came out in October in the New York Times, and it was called something like um, it, it had to do with this lost manuscript that President Obama had written as a graduate student, which was never published. Mm. This mm-hmm. author uh, discovered that manuscript and read it and wrote a very lengthy article. Um, talking about the relationship between those ideas and the ideas of Bayard Rustin. And it was very clear that you could take a pencil and connect the dots from Bayard's philosophy and Bayard's writings uh, into the manuscript that President Obama had written. So it was really wow. quite a remarkable, um, a remarkable piece. Uh, and so I think that was another demonstration of the fact that Bayard had, did indeed, uh, influence uh, Barack and Michelle Obama. Did you feel? Did you feel Bayard smiling as as you read it? <laughs> yeah. Hey, and giving you two snacks, like yeah, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, mm-hmm. I told you so. You know. I. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. He said, "I planted those seeds." All right. Oh, exactly. that is wonderful. You know. I, you know there are times when I say to myself, you know, I mean, Barack Obama was here in the 1980s at the Columbia University. And I sometimes I say to myself, I can't figure out for the life of me why he didn't show up at the Randolph Institute at some point or mm-hmm. reach out to Bayer. Um mm-hmm. But be that as it may. Wow. He was, you know, he was a student. He was very busy. May have been a little intimidated by the thought. Who knows? But... Um, as I said before, Bard certainly would have welcomed him, welcomed him into the office for conversation. Mm-hmm. Ah, ah, hey, but but you know, but isn't that great to know that that he touched, you know, he touched it. And there's another generation because, you, like you said, how you can draw that link. And there's young people who are going to be touched by seeing that, that person in the White House, a black person in the White House, and then read about him and then read down and down and down so that, that's, that's, I was going to say, let the circle be unbroken. You know, it, it, it just keeps going. It, it keeps growing out and, and expanding. Now, mm-hmm. I, you know, I follow you on Facebook. <clears throat> and I recall that you were, uh, somebody had written something and they were describing Bayard, and you're going like, you know, wait a minute, look at this. This is this is that man. Who are they talking about? <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and I laughed, and I laughed. Do you, uh, are you ever? Do you ever have other moments like, you know, okay, all right, he was more than that. I and I like that part that you were like, you know, wait a minute, that wasn't him. Oh, this is him. Look at this picture. You know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was—I I met with the that was one of the authors I met with a few weeks ago here in the city. Um, mm-hmm. He was here doing an event out in Brooklyn for his book. So you know, we 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 patched up our differences, if you will. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I kind, of, you know, I want, I want, bar, I want, but people to be accurate um, mm-hmm. when it comes to Barr. Now, you know, the, people can certainly disagree with him as, uh, about his ideas, but they, they they should reflect those ideas accurately. You know, even if they disagree with him, and then make the argument, well, why you why do you disagree with him? That's that's perfectly fine. Um, you know, describing him his physical presence in a way that was really not accurate. I sort of felt, well, you know, there's not really any excuse for that because you can you can look at pictures of him. You can look at pictures mm-hmm. of him, you know, within a month of the time that he died, and you can see, uh, you know, how vigorous and how vibrant he was. So I, you mm-hmm. know, I was a little. Uh, Maybe a little harsh on Rashid, but um, we patched up our differences. But but I agreed with you because there was there was an intensity in his eyes. He was there was a passion in him, and like you said, even up even you know with that gray hair, it was like you know it was like. You go sit down and listen to him. And there was a passion. There was a vitality. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I love that. I was, I was like, go ahead. That's right. Just speak up for him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I thought like, that, well, that was great. You know, that, that was great. So <clears throat> without getting into into the documentary and who they picked in there, are, are you portrayed in the doc? How are you portrayed? Are you always just? You know, just like that, that one line, you know, his his partner. Do you get, do they ever talk more about the relationship that you two had? Um, are you talking about a specific film at this, right now? Or no, you... no, no. Anything oh, okay. that you know, the things that have gone on. Oh, yeah, or, sure. Or coming into the future. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was, well, there was a short, there was also a short film called Byard and Me. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a 16-minute film. I think it's available on the internet, uh, and that okay, has to do with our relationship, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and especially about the whole business of Bayard adopting me, because that material really wasn't covered in Brother Outsider. So that you know mm-hmm. very much focuses on on the time that I had with him. Mm-hmm. Um, there, uh, let me see, who was I talking to recently? Uh, there, you know, there are people who want to delve more into that later in those later years, and you know, include me in more in more of the material, which you know, I'm certainly open to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I was on the phone today, actually today, earlier today, with a filmmaker from Britain who wants to do another documentary. Um, which you know, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, Better Outsider is great. And it's really done wonders for Bayard's uh, disability. But he said to me, well, you know, that's 20 years old. And, of course, Uh when you're 73, 20 years doesn't sound like a long time. But when you're 25, 20 years is a long time. So there's a whole new generation of people out there. uh, And there's a lot of actual technical advances that have been made since Brother Outsider was, was produced. So there are things that they could do with the new documentary, which they weren't able to do back in the day. So um, he's he's looking about <clears throat> he's looking along those lines, and also there's material that you know they just weren't able to cover simply because the amount of time that you have. So they could bring up a whole new campaigns and um, 
things that Bard in his did in his life which were not covered in Brother Outsider. So I think, you know, it could could certainly be a good compliment, if you will. Be like a second you know, Mm-hmm. You know, I find, too, that, you know, in our, our quest for marriage equality, you know, and now people think it's, you know, I mean, who hasn't been to a big, fat gay wedding? You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. there, it, it, that there were, I mean, I have met um, Edie Windsor's wife, Judith, and mm-hmm. um, we've talked about that. And I've met other couples who, I mean, I have met couples here who have been together like many, many years to where one lived, they had a two-family flat, one lived upstairs, the other one lived downstairs, so they couldn't do that. And the fact about the, you know, the same-sex marriage, about that adopted son, I know in Hawaii we went to this one place, and I want to say it's a botanical garden, and one of the things that the, the tour guide, you know, and he was like, well, I mean, you might not have figured it out, but these are two gay men. But one of them had to adopt the other as far as, you know, being able to pass on, you know, their fortune, their riches, their wealth or whatever. But there, there's a whole lot more to our pathway to marriage equality that I think a lot of people don't know. They don't know what it was like. And, and a lot of people were losing, you know, because of age, you know, who oh, aren't there to talk about what it was like and what the the hoops and subterfuge you had to go to to be married. That many people now, they just, I mean, which, you know, sometimes when I see someone who had a big, fat, gay destination marriage, and then the next year they're getting a divorce, I all get almost like livid because it's that you don't know what people went through, you know, in order to get to have this to where you can get divorced the next year. Do you feel that uh-huh. that part of the conversation is important to also have? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, if people don't know the history, they it's hard to appreciate, um, like you said, what people went through to, you know, to get to the right to vote, to get to the right to marry, to get to the right to go into the military, if that's what you want to do. Um, uh-huh. And so... You know, if you haven't grown up during the time that these struggles were taking place, you could kind of take it for granted that, oh, well, you know, wasn't this always the way it was? Mm-hmm. And then you meet people that have been together for 35 or 40 years and had to go through all kinds of changes, you know, just to get to some modicum of happiness in the society. And then maybe you start to understand, you know, there there was a struggle. It was not. Mm-hmm. It was not always as easy it is, is as it is now. Which is not to say that there are not problems and everything is hunky dory, mm. but it's nothing like it was, uh, you know, fifty or sixty years ago. Yeah, and especially now when you have the Supreme Court who seems on the verge. I mean, and seems open to. I mean, they've already, you know, uh, the vote on Roe. You've heard them talk about. Um, uh, same-sex marriage, uh, which is well, the irony of Clarence Thomas talking about, you know, Lawrence versus Virginia interracial marriage. I mean, come on, you know, voters' rights. So all of these things that we have come to live with for so many years that, you know, we've got a Supreme Court. If you don't know the history, you're not going to get riled up. 
and be ready to march to protect these rights. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. Is that one of the things that you're hoping that comes out of Thursday's discussion? It comes out of what? Out of Thursday's discussion. Oh. Um, well, that would be good. Um, <laughs> I think my only hesitate, my only hesitation is, you know, I wonder, I wonder how many, how many young people will be there. Mm. You know, I mean, you know, the older people kind of know this, but we have reached out. You know, the uh, the friend, the meeting house where we're having it is connected to a school, a high school, grammar school, and we have reached out to the school and suggested that there might be students who are interested in history or political science and their teachers who would, you know, certainly be welcome to come to the event. So I hope some of them will be there. Well, if not, we'll just have to find a way to continue this conversation. Walter, I think that I always enjoy talking to you. Um, we have talked about later on talking with Mandy, and I, I, I enjoy talking to Mandy. Mandy and I were both involved in National Black Justice Coalition back in the day, um, and I've heard a lot of her stories, and I think that that's great. I think that your treasure, um, what is next? I mean, besides, you know, continuing the work that you're doing, do you have anything on your short list of things that you still want to get done? Um, yes. Although I, I'm not, I, <laughs> I shouldn't say that it's a short list. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, some some of the work is work that we're working on now. Getting, uh, you know, I still have a considerable amount of material on Bayard, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm in conversation with the museum in Memphis about the possibility of their acquiring some of this material. Oh, uh, okay. Because uh, they're interested in perhaps building or or having an an educational institution there. Uh, that would house some of Byard's uh, writings and things like that. So, you know, I, I want to get those things placed and and safe and secure before mm-hmm. I uh, before I transition, shall we say? Uh, so, yeah. So, I'd like to do that. Um, other what than about that, the the one? And is there the new one that's in D.C.? Is there any? Any possibility of any of that being there, being a home for part of it? Well, possibly, if they mm-hmm. if they want. I mean, they haven't really asked for anything. I, there is a piece on loan there now, the watch that uh, Dr. King gave to Bard after the march in Washington. That's uh, on loan to them now, but it's going to be part of the Memphis exhibit. So mm-hmm. uh, at some point, it will be sent down to Memphis. Um, well, you know, I, I probably have some material that they would want to acquire because, you know, they're really a history, they're a history museum as opposed to like really an archive or a Mm -hmm. a place for scholars to go and study, uh, you know, places like that are more like the Library of Congress or the King Center's Papers Project out at Stanford, the one that Dr. Carson runs, um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of the material I have is not necessarily material that people would want to put on display, 
but they would want to have it available for researchers and scholars to go and and look at. So, you know, there's also the Schomburg Center here in New York, mm-hmm, New York mm-hmm. Public Library. So there are a number of places that probably material will end up at. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I know I know the Schomburg, you know, and I know that it's important to have, you know, these archival places where people can go and just dig through the uh, through the papers and read it. I know here we have a uh, Ruther Museum that's on the Wayne State campus where there's a lot of things related to labor and some things yes. about civil rights are there too. So, you know, girl. Yes, well, I want to get out there sometime to the, uh, well, ar- the labor archives because I know they have material on buyers that I'd like to take a look at. Well, you know, I'm right here. When you come, right. you, you better you you better connect with me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we can do well, it face to face. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in actually I was at um, I went for the Pride in Princeton, and you know, because I got involved with them right about uh, before the pandemic hit, and I went there for Pride, and someone walked up to me and they said. Oh, you do have legs because they'd only see me from the waist up on a Facebook <laughs> thing, and it was so funny. But yeah, but yeah, uh, I, I, but we yeah we have to start to do face to face, and you know, hopefully, like I said, I was in New York at Christmas, but uh, once the weather breaks, I'll be there because I would love to come and see that plaque and and see you know see those streets. There's something great about being able to 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 see the streets and stand there and just sort of close your eyes and be a part of it, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Kind of soak up the energy. Mm-hmm. Walter, I always, if you're coming, I will. I will. Walter, I always enjoy talking to you. I look forward to talking to you. I think we were trying to arrange it with Mandy in um, August, I think. I want yeah, to say let's, Mandy, let's try to do something closer, you know, closer to the March anniversary. Mm-hmm. Mandy, when I first started doing this show, Mandy and Dr. Sylvia Rue were two of my first guests. Mm-hmm. And um, and they go way far back, so it was that was really like an amazing history to be, you know, just sort of surrounded and wrapped in of the things that they've seen. And I, I, I cherish that. Um, well, I hope you don't get the snow we're getting here. I want to thank you for your time um, today. I will be in touch with you so we can arrange closer to the march. And hopefully come spring, I will see you there in New York. That would be wonderful. I want to thank my guest, Walter Nagel. Nagel is a surviving partner of a late American civil rights leader and the executive director of the Bayard Reston Fund, which commemorates Reston's life, values, and legacy. On March 17th, we celebrate Reston's birthday as more and more people are introduced to his work through books and documentaries. You can support Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio by following on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and or becoming a monthly supporter on Patreon.com. 
current and past episodes of the show can be heard on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Stay tuned as we continue to introduce you to more amazing individuals living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.